Second Timothy chapter four, uh, verse five, just verse five today. And so hear the word of the Lord. As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness, the joy, the fun that we've had this morning as we celebrate and revel in the good gift of your fatherhood and of the fathers that you've given to us. And now as we come to your word, would you give us grace to hear? Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts that are softened to the impression and the work of your spirit. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds of this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard, For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So God, today, would you speak to us? Apart from you, we can do nothing. Would you, O God of glory, even today, even now, speak? Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I deliberated where to go this morning because I know this is one thing, one fact that is uh, true, or two facts, maybe twin truths. Um, I I wanted to keep going in Second Timothy, right? I don't want to just take a one-off and do a Father's Day sermon. And the, the second reason I don't want to just do a Father's Day sermon is that I will just blubber through it. Um, if you couldn't hear earlier, I just can't really talk about it. So uh, anyway, so I wanted to continue, but I, I didn't know how much to do. But I wanted to center here on verse five of chapter four, because this is uh, the sort of the, the closing statement of the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Timothy, and to maybe reorient you about where we've been. Right. Paul is at the very this is the Apostle Paul who wrote 13 letters of our New Testament. He is at the very end of his life. This is the last letter that he writes. And he's writing to encourage, to stir up his child in the faith, Timothy, who he sent as an apostolic emissary, as a, as a missionary, as a preacher, as a church planter of sorts. He sent him to Ephesus. And Timothy is in undergoing opposition. He's undergoing opposition from false teachers who are taking the message of Jesus and corrupting it, twisting it, taking Old Testament scriptures and and massaging them into saying something that they don't actually say. And he's being confronted with them. And he's also being confronted by the outright paganism of an ancient Greek city. Ephesus was a seat of of, of worshiping the Greek gods. And so he was on a, a war on two fronts as he tried to contend for the faith. That was once handed down for the saints as he tried to take a stand and and share the good news of Jesus, that he was under fire. And we learn from the beginning of of the book that Timothy was rather, it seems like he might have had a predisposition toward timidity. And that's just a fancy word for cowardice, for for maybe choosing the, the easy way. For, for keeping his mouth shut when he should have been speaking, from staying when he should have been going, or going when he should have been staying. And so Paul 
writes him from the bottom, from the basement level, from the dungeon level of a very notorious prison in Rome to stir him up, to fan into flame the gift of God that was in him by the laying on of hands we read in chapter 1. And so he's been going through this section, chapter 3, about the difficult days that would come. And now we talked about the difficult days were not just for Timothy, but they are difficult days for us today. If you're seeking to be faithful to the Lord Jesus, it should be apparent by now, it should have been apparent for a while that we are in a a, a cultural upheaval, societal verging on a, a cultural revolution of sorts. The difficult days haven't passed. The hard times, the false teachers, the the outright godlessness, uh, the paganism that is dominant in Western society is not so much the the paganism of the Greeks, it's the paganism of secularism. Secularism has its own set of religious commitments, truth commitments that presuppose a materialistic, naturalistic worldview, uh, and they demand certain things from it. And to be consistent in our faithfulness to Jesus, we find ourselves in a very similar position as Timothy. That we are in difficult days. They're not as difficult as they once were, perhaps, for some. They might grow more difficult in days ahead. There are brothers and sisters around the world who experience greater difficulties than we could ever imagine just to be faithful to Jesus this morning in worship. Here we are in our air conditioning and lighting and cushy pews and microphones and all the things that we enjoy. And yet, several times in, from, from the middle of chapter 3 into this verse in chapter 5, Paul uses a phrase, it's just two words in Greek, and it's, but you. In verse 10 in the ESV, it shows up, you, however... In verse 14, it's, but as for you. And in our passage today, our verse today, it's, as for you. Literally, it's, but you. Or if you want to get super literal, you, but, because things are, and it's Greek, don't worry about it. Um, uh, But over and over again, after laying the groundwork of saying it's hard days, you, however, you're not to walk in the, the spirit of these of the culture around you. You're not to walk in the spirit of these these who would quarrel and wrangle and twist the word of God to say something that it doesn't actually say, nor are you to acquiesce, to yield and give the ground simply to the form of idolatry and paganism of outright godlessness that surrounds you in Ephesus. You, however, when, when Paul does this, when Paul makes this maneuver, he says, but you, he lays out, here, things are, things are not great. You, however, evil people, verse, verse 13, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but you. And then now in chapter 4, we've just learned about those who are hearing the word of God in a, in a faulty way, that they have itching ears that they want to accumulate for themselves, teachers, to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. You remember we said, there was a a commentator who says that they, in so doing, and, and so having these itching ears, that they wanted what was shared to them, whether it be in a worship service like this, or what it, maybe it's in the culture at large, that they wanted it 
to serve, to, to bolster, to support their, their passions. It, they wanted the spoken word. They wanted the word of God to serve what they wanted it to say. And in so doing, they became the measure of truth. They made themselves the measure of truth, and they made themselves the measure of who they would listen to. And as I said last week, and I'm not going to chase this, this today, but if you were to go, I think I recently saw an article where it was the, the 10 most popular sermons or something like that on YouTube. Like the 10, those were played the most in maybe America, I don't know. Um, but I mean, an easy majority, an easy, maybe super majority, were people that I would never say, I would, I would never commend to you. I'll say it just gentle, right? We're going to leave words like heresy and heretic just over here. But people who deny the Trinity, people deny the, the nature of the gospel, people who deny the, the veracity and trustworthiness, the, the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. Who take the word of God and they twist it and they make it say what they want to say. And we're not talking about, hey, we, we disagree on these secondary or third level or fourth level things. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that they are preaching a different gospel than that which we find in the scriptures and that which has been passed down from the saints from generation to generation up until this point. And those are the ones that in home, at home, people in America... And say, I really want to be religiously inspired. They, they are clicking these. And whether they realize it or not, I don't think it's by intention. It is because there are itching ears. Their ears have been tuned rather than the, tuned toward not the heart of God, but to their own selves. And in so doing, they become just like our first parents, Adam and Eve. You know, do you remember the tree? There were two trees in the garden. Well, what was, there was a good tree, the tree of life. The good one. I mean, they're both good, but the one that hey, this is, there were no restrictions on. And then what was the other one? That's what it sounded like to me. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Uh, I know you got the right gold stars, right? Gold stars, I know you got the right answer. I just couldn't really make it up. Uh, <clears throat> that, and so they were tempted, they were, they were for, forbidden to partake in that tree. And that was the tree that Satan actually tempted them. And they, Adam and Eve and then Adam both came and took the fruit. And in so doing, they said, not only, right, not only do we want to be God for ourselves and establish ourselves as, as, the, as the determiners of what, are, what is right and wrong, but we want to become just like these. We, we want to become the measure of truth. And we see that self-ism, self-centeredness, which sprung up as a rotten fruit in the human nature in the garden as a result of the fall. And it has grown and blossomed in every generation and in fact in every heart since. You see it poignantly with the interaction of our Lord Jesus when He's on, his, on trial with Pilate. Where Pilate says to Him, you remember his question, what is truth? 
How postmodern of you, Pilate. It's an indication that setting ourselves as the bar, either setting ourselves individually, which is this, this is where our culture lives. We set ourselves individually as the measure of truth and who will listen to about my truth and your truth. I heard that this week as I've started to go down to, uh, there's a, uh, a Planned Parenthood abortion mill down on Forest Drive. And um, right now I just go down and pray as some others preach the gospel and and there was a, a lady there who was, who was working for Planned Parenthood. And we're trying to share the gospel with her. And, uh, and she used that same line. She said, that's your truth. As though truth were just something that we were able to fashion out of Play-Doh, like my kids play on the dining room table. In cultures past, it wasn't so much that truth was individualized like that, measuring, our, measuring truth by our own passions, but it was, a, it was more of a community-wide thing. That communities and cultures were built as measures of truth. And so this shows up in communitarian cultures where the group determines the right, and individualistic cultures like our own. Neither the individual nor the group can inoculate us to the danger of trying to set ourselves as the measure of truth. The only way we become in right relationship with the, with the real world, with the truth of the world, and the, the truth of the world, and the truth of the people in it, and the God who has made it, is not by scientific enterprise. It's not by classical education, not knocking any of that. It's not by learning Greek and Hebrew and Latin and whatever languages you want to learn. But the right way you, the only way you become in right relationship with the truth is that if you yield to the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians that he in Christ are hidden all of the treasures, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, are wrapped up in Christ. That doesn't mean if you're not in Christ, you can't know things to be true. It's inevitable that you will know things to be true. You have the very law of God written upon your heart. Creation itself testifies before you of the glory of God. This is our Father's world, and it's an unassailable, inevitable fact that you'll be confronted with that. The reality of sin, however, is that In our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. And in our suppression, in our suppressing of the truth, of the reality of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the suppressing of the gospel, suppressing of the nature of our own sin, we stuff down what nature says, what creation says, what our very consciences say. And if you are outside of Christ today, this is where you are. You might be able to understand truth in the parts, but you can't understand truth in the whole. Because sin has corrupted not only our moral capacity, but sin has corrupted our very thinking. That's why scripture over and over again tells us that we have to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. They, suit, they, they collect, accumulate teachers to suit their own passions. If there are people that are collecting preachers, of the, of preachers 
who are supposed to be preaching the word, preaching the gospel, if they're collecting them and they are not testifying to the truthfulness that we find in Scripture, that sign not only about an indictment against the, the teachers, the preachers, but it's an indictment upon the hearers as well, that they are themselves possibly unregenerate, not, bo- not born again, but at the very best, immature. And so after laying this out, Paul turns to Timothy, and this is the last time. Paul uses this phrase, but you, four times in the pastoral epistles. That's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Three of them are chapters 3 and 4 here. So he's trying to drive a wedge, a clear distinction between Timothy and the Christian ministry. And from that, really, the the Christian life, he's trying to draw a clear demarcation between this is what's around you, and but as for you, you must you follow my life in verse 10. You continue in what you've learned in verse 14 of chapter 3. And here, as for you, always be sober-minded. It's a phrase that seems very distant from us, but it shouldn't. All of us know what drunkenness is. All of us know what sobriety is. Right? Drunkenness is that you've... Typically, we use it in the language of alcohol, but that we've, we've given ourselves over to too much alcohol and we begin to lose our faculties. We begin, to, we begin to think differently. Our inhibitions go. Our reservations go. Our moral co- co- conduct and commentary on the world around us plummets. We become disjointed from the world around us and sort of... Maybe you're one of those that would just giggle at a drunk person. It's easy to do. What's the opposite? What's sobriety? Well, it's not that. To be sober-minded is to be in one's right mind. You remember that story of Jesus? It's awesome. Mark 5. Awesome chapter. But there's a story of the man that, that he's, he comes to Jesus. And you remember, he's living in the tombs. He's cutting himself. There are a legion of demons that have inhabited him. And, he's, and Jesus, you know, they ask him his name. He says, I, I am legion for we are many. Super creepy. And Jesus, in this confrontation with demonic powers, casts them out, sends them into the swine. I'm not going to preach that story. This is just the story. And you know where you find him at the end of the chapter. He is not given over to demonic spirits. He's not given over to madness where he's running with the, with the tombs and cutting himself and unable to be bound by a chain. But he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And scripture says he is in his right mind. And this is the power of God to change us. For we are, when we are suppressing the truth, caught up in our spiritual drunkenness. It doesn't have to be alcohol that makes you drunk. You could become drunk in your mind with the cultural winds at large. You could become intoxicated with the approval of man and the fear of man that Scripture tells us is a snare. And you live for the approval of other people and you certainly could never tell someone that's not actually the way things are. That's not actually what I believe. That's not actually how the world, the world works. There's a cultural, spiritual drunkenness that, that pulls us aside when we are not thinking in the Spirit of God, seating at, seated at the feet of Christ in our right minds. Yielding to the Lordship of Jesus, 
surrendering to Christ as Lord, Savior, and truth. Be sober-minded or be self-controlled in all things. Another way to say this, Alistair Begg helpfully says, a preacher up in Ohio who's from Scotland, and I don't know how he went from Scotland to Ohio. Probably would have stayed in Scotland. No, no offense, Ohio people. But then he says, uh, keep your head. Keep your head, Timothy. People are going crazy in Ephesus. They're going crazy in false teaching. They're going crazy in corrupting the gospel and corrupting the scriptures. They're going crazy with godless license, with immorality, sexual perversion. Idolatry is rampant. And in fact, we know from testimony of, of history that this is how Timothy loses his life. That there is a crowd that's going to worship at, an, at, a, at a temple, at an idol's temple. And Timothy intercedes physically. He doesn't begin to like beat them, but he, but he stands in the way of them saying, Turn around. Don't go this way. And they kill him in the street. Be sober-minded. You have to keep your head. As things are going crazy around you, you have to be calm and sane. Let your reasonableness be known to all. There is no room in the kingdom of God and in the ministry of Jesus Christ for raving lunatics who yell and scream and berate other people. That is the very opposite of being sober-minded. Keep your head, Timothy, even when you are tempted to lose it. Even when you're tempted to blow the top. And you could feel the pressure of this. Those of you who are paying attention in this world, you can feel the pressure of it. You can feel the pressure to succumb to, to other saviors. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. This will save us. This, this presidential candidate will save us. This Supreme Court will save us. Don't, knock, don't misunderstand me. The overturning of Roe is a good gift from God. The work's not done. Praise God for it. But if we are looking to the political machine of the United States of America to somehow secure us in this world, then we have forgotten Christ, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. You should labor in this country to see righteousness abound because we love our neighbors. But don't lose your head. Don't lose your head on Facebook. Don't lose your head on social media. Don't lose your head at the family reunion. Be reasonable, be consistent, and keep showing up. Be the only one there that seems like you know Jesus is on the throne. Keep your head. Endure suffering. This has been a theme in 2 Timothy, so I'm not going to treat it again. But over and over and over again, Timothy, um, Paul tells Timothy, if you're going to do the work of ministry, if you're going to stand as the stone in the stream where everything's rushing downstream, and you're going to be faithful to Jesus, and you're going to preach the word, and you're going to uphold that all scriptures breathed out by God, if you're going to be that guy, you will endure suffering. 
You'll endure hardship. And in fact, Jesus says this over and over again. The disciple is not greater than the master. If they hated me, they'll hate you. And so for many of us, especially in America where we have grown accustomed, we've grown accustomed to freedoms. We've grown accustomed to ease. We've grown accustomed to plenty. And I'm not even talking to the wealthy amongst us. You have plenty. We've grown accustomed to it. And it can dull the senses. It can dull the spiritual blade, if you will. What does the writer of Proverbs say? Give me, don't give me riches or poverty. Just give me enough. Endure suffering. Perhaps the idol of our age as we wrestle with who God has called us to be in this time. Not only is it self, but it's the convenient self. It's the comfortable self. It's the, I'm really busy self. I get it. I get that one right here. Really busy self. I don't, I don't have time. I'm too busy with these other things. And if that's you this morning, if you're thinking, I really, I'm interested about Jesus, or I want to get serious about following Christ, or I want to take that step of spiritual maturity and plug into a church and grow in my faith, but I'm just so busy. If I may, with a a gentle word of warning, consider what Jesus says about the cost of discipleship. There's the famous one, right? Whoever would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. But there's this other one, like at the end of Matthew chapter 8. Where Jesus is on the way and there's these these three instances. Where he's encountered with someone who's kind of interested about following him. And this first guy comes to Jesus, I'll follow you. And Jesus' response is, are you sure? No, it's, it's... Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you ready to be homeless with Jesus? Another one comes to him and says, Lord, I will follow, or Jesus says to him, I'll follow me. Let me first bury my dead. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their their dead. Let the dead bury their dead. Maybe you're too comfortable in your family unit. And you know it'll, it'll grow friction either in your marriage if you take a step of faithfulness toward Jesus or maybe with your parents, maybe with your grown kids. Is the ease of your family the idol that you must confront to follow Jesus? You must endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Obviously, Paul is writing to... Timothy, he's writing to one who is occupying a ministerial position, work of the gospel ministry. And this word evangelist is only used three times in the New Testament. So we don't know, is is he talking about Timothy as one who occupies a certain office, office of evangelist like Philip, Philip the evangelist in the book of Acts? Or is it simply any who would share the evangel? But here's the application I would bring to you without parsing all of that out this morning. 
that if you're going to be sober-minded and if you're going to endure suffering, if you're going to bear up under the cultural onslaught before you and be faithful to Jesus, it will be by going deeper in the gospel, not abandoning the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, who He is, what He has done on the cross on our, our, for us, it is a substitutionary atonement. He was really dead and He rose three days later. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father and He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. In the person and the work of Christ, you and His Word, you must plant your feet and you must be one as you do so. As one who has been brought from death to life. As one who has been brought from darkness to light. As one who is just like them. Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Bound in sin. A slave to sin. Dead in our sins and trespasses. But because of God's great love toward you and His mercy and His grace. Not because of your greatness. You're not a spiritual rock star. You didn't do this on your own. And if you know that gospel, then that gospel must be your footing in this world. All of it. Jesus is one who was there at the creation. The triune God was present and he saw the fall. Planned from eternity past that he would bring redemption through the death of his only son. It was not plan B, C, D, E, or F. This is plan A. And that he would bring this fallen world, sown with the seed of the gospel, seeing lives transformed by that powerful message and the power of the Holy Spirit, that he would see this world come to its right and proper end. Jesus accomplishes redemption and there will be new creation. There will be a consummation. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. A new Jerusalem descending from above prepared for us. Where there's no more sorrow, no more sickness and no more sin. Take your footing on the whole gospel. You're righteous today because of Jesus. You have hope tomorrow because you have a priest who has gone ahead of you. A living hope. An anchor for the soul, the writer of Hebrews says. You have power for today because you have the Holy Spirit as a down payment of what God is going to do. And you have full, sure confidence that this world, with its madness, with its murder, with its mayhem, is not the end of the story. You can take hope and do the work of an evangelist as you plant your feet on his gospel. And finally, fulfill your ministry. One of the other places that you see this word, which plays off of the word of of fullness, obviously, is when Barnabas and then they they, they sailed and they they completed their journey. They They finally arrived. And we know from history that, right, Timothy, we're still here. Timothy has died and gone to glory. So to fulfill his ministry did not mean that he was going to see Jesus return. That Timothy served as a baton holder for his days. You understand what I mean? He, he, was, a, he was a link in the chain. 
He took the good news and the ministry that the Apostle Paul gave to him, and he gave it to faithful men that they might go and teach others also. Chapter 2, verse 2. Recently, I don't want to give too much biographic stuff here, but um, I really wrestled with this. I shared with some of our staff, I said, don't freak out. Um, But this is what I'm praying about. What does it mean for me to fulfill my ministry at Blaney? What does it mean for me to be done? Because we, we've, tr- we've transitioned. Well, I've, sh- I've shared with, with various contexts. We're in a different sort of ministry than we were a, a few years ago. Certainly coming out of COVID, we're like, huh. as a pastor, I was like, huh? I don't know what to do here. And God has kept us together and knitted us together And seeing what I see from the vantage point and whatever wisdom the Lord has granted me, there are tremendous things ahead. There's tremendous change and tremendous work. Tremendous opportunity. And I needed to know from the Lord. I needed to know, was I here as a link in the chain through troubled waters? And is this exciting season to come mine? That was my prayer. For months, months I prayed and I wrestled. And I've come away. Some of you are like, what's happening right now? Um, I've come away with, with, and I don't, this doesn't mean, I don't know what's going to happen, right? But I know that the things that are before us are going to take years to see fruition. And I'm not going to step into them unless I and my heart, Lord might have another idea, but if I, unless I and my heart, I'm willing to give those years to see it come to fruition. And that's where the Lord has brought me. To fulfill my ministry, I don't know, I can't, can't quite answer it, but it means I stay, unless y'all kick me out anytime soon, I'm staying for a while. And the question is, what does it mean for you? Not only to fulfill your ministry, each of you have been given spheres of influence for the sake of the gospel. What does it mean to fulfill your ministry at home and in your workplace? What does it mean? Begin to ask the Lord to be faithful. And so much of what the Lord has taught me the last eight years. I'm a, I'm a dense sort of fellow. Uh, it takes me a long time to learn stuff. That one of the greatest things you can do for the sake of Christ is to keep showing up. So if I can, just is the only word I'm going to say to dads. Um, and I hope I don't get too emotional for you. Keep showing up. Keep showing up. Keep praying. Keep opening the scriptures. Keep being faithful to your wife. Keep being faithful to your kids. Give your life away for them. Your work's important. I know. I get it. Stuff's important. But I promise you, there's, there's no better gift other than Jesus, your wife herself, that you've been given other than your kids. Keep showing up. You pull in that driveway, I'm not going to cry. You pull in that driveway and you just, you just want to scream. The stuff that you've seen, the stuff that you've had to go through, the stupid stuff people have done, you're like, yeah, I know you're better than that. Here's the thing, here's a trick that I sometimes use, if, if, you, if that's your boat. And sometimes you bring that work stress in home. Fulfill your ministry by being faithful 
And keep a little journal in your car, your truck, your moped, whatever you drive, uh, and write that out. Write the garbage out. Close the journal and leave it in the car. If there's something you got to pick up tomorrow, write it down in the journal. It's not settled yet. Close the book and go in your house and be there. Show up. And by show up, I don't just mean be a warm body, but show up and engage them. Love them. Ask about their day. Serve them. It's not, uh, it, it's not effeminate to help do the dishes, despite what some might tell you. Or to help pick up the house. Show up. And show, show your kids what it means to love your wife as Christ loves the church. Um, and even when they're acting nuts. And you, or you've, and you know you've dropped the ball. You, you, did, you were not sober-minded. And that top blue. Right? You need to show them what it means to repent. And to say, I... I'm not Jesus and I'm not perfect. And I should not have done this. I should not have said this. I was feeling this and that's not an excuse. And I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And this is what Jesus does for us. And you open up an opportunity for the gospel. But keep showing up. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. Don't lose faith. For some of you... You might be in that place that we talked about earlier where you know bits and pieces of the world but you don't understand the whole because you have not surrendered your life to Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so you suppress the truth and unrighteousness and and maybe your life's a wreck. Your family's a wreck because of it. Your kids are a wreck because of it. I want you to know that Jesus is the one who not only did He rise from the dead, but he raises people from the dead. And if he raises people from the dead, he can raise your family. He can raise your marriage. He can raise you to new life. But the first step you have to take is surrender and say, Jesus, I have sinned. I have failed. I have dishonored God. Scripture says that you have died and that you're a friend of the that you're a friend of sinners. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you save me? Would you bring me to yourself? Would you change me? Dear ones, he's able and he's willing. So let me pray for us. God, would you give us grace as we Consider these imperatives that Paul gave to Timothy. And would you give us grace to keep our head in insane times? To keep our head in steady, faithful presence to ourselves and in our homes and in this world. To give us grace to be ready for the opposition that the truth of God will bring. And to not stake our heart upon the approval of people, not chase after the applause of the world, but that we would stand upon the evangel, the gospel, 
that we would boast as the Apostle Paul, that we would boast only in the cross by which we have been crucified to the world and the world to us. We live with a new master, with the true Lord, the true King, Jesus. Lord, would you summon some to faith today, to new life? Would you change homes? Would you change marriages? Would you give grace for these men to keep showing up and seeking you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.